Are you a mom launching kids into adulthood? If so, you need to know about my Empty Nest Mom Retreat. It is the gathering for moms who have at least one child over the age of 18 or who have launched them all and have a full empty nest. September 27th through the 29th are the dates, and Cedar Lake Retreat Center in Cedar Lake, Indiana is the place. You can fly into Chicago airports and drive to Cedar Lake in a little over an hour. Come join me. Best Value Registration is available through May 27th, and space is limited to just 100 moms, so don't delay. Check out jillsavage.org slash retreat to register today. I would have used that situation to just simply tell her that she needed to pull up her bootstraps, she needed to buck up and move on, she needed to figure out what plan B was. But God was working inside of me to better understand the importance of compassion. I didn't fully understand it at that point, but I was beginning to understand it. Welcome to the No More Perfect Podcast, where we talk about the messy, less than perfect, but real stuff of life. My name's Jill Savage, and I'll be your host. I'm so glad you're here. I am so excited to be bringing you encouragement in the podcast world. And you know, as I was thinking about where I would start, I decided that I would start with the place that I've grown the most in my motherhood, in my marriage, in my relationships over the last, I would say, 10 to 15 years. God's really been doing a work in my heart as it relates to compassion. And that's why today we're going to tackle the topic of compassion. We're going to talk about what compassion looks like. But bottom line, it's how I stopped being a buck up wife and a buck up mom. So I kind of started this journey before I ever wrote any of the No More Perfect books. I mean, I I began actually a, well before, I'm trying to think, 10 years ago is when I started um when I first wrote, no, this would have been 15 years ago when I first wrote My Heart's at Home. And one of the one of the chapters in My Heart's at Home was a chapter titled Home as a Trauma Unit. And that chapter came out of a place where I was beginning to really experience some growth in my own personal life. Now, I had no idea how much growth was ahead of me and how much I had more to learn, but I put everything I knew about compassion, about empathy um, in that chapter of my, um, my Hearts at Home book. And that book looked at 12 roles that home plays in our life, like home as a safe house, home as a rest area, home as a pep rally. And one of the chapters was home as a trauma unit. And so that was the beginning of my journey um, to really begin to understand that. And then it was somewhere around uh, 2011 when I started writing No More Perfect Moms. 
And that was another hard journey in my life because it was also during that time that my marriage went through a terrible crisis. But I really put it all out in No More Perfect Moms. I was as honest as I could be at that point in my life. I was um, really wanting to embrace authenticity. Um, I was learning to change my expectations about um, myself, my expectations of others, my expectations of life. And the subtitle of, of that book, No More Perfect Moms, is Learn to Love Your Real Life. And I was certainly doing that in that season of my life. In fact, most of my books, you know, people say, you know, how do you decide what books you're going to write? And I tell people, it's where I've screwed up or it's where I've been learning. That's where I begin to get um, intentional about that growth in my life. And ultimately, when I see what a difference it makes in my life, I can't wait to share it. And that's why I um, eventually write a book on that topic. So No More Perfect Moms came along and that one, um, I introduced something called the perfection infection. And the perfection infection is when we have unrealistic expectations of ourselves and we unfairly compare ourselves to others. And I began to realize that sometimes it was the perfection infection that actually squeezed out the compassion in my life. And that's when I turned a corner and went even deeper into this topic of compassion. Eventually, I wrote No More Perfect Kids, which is where we looked at what happens when the perfection infection invades your parenting and you have unrealistic expectations of your kids or you unfairly compare your kids to others. And eventually, Mark and I wrote No More Perfect Marriages, which we looked at what happens when the perfection infection invades your marriage. We have unrealistic expectations of our spouse or of marriage or we unfairly compare our spouse or our marriage to others. And so all of that has been this journey of coming to understand the impact of compassion and why it's important and why it has been important in deepening my relationships as a wife, as a mother, quite frankly, as a friend, as a leader. And so let's go back. I want to take you back to that very first time that I talked about the concept of compassion, and it was in that chapter of My Heart's at Home when I was talking about home being a trauma unit, and we had just come through a really difficult season in our daughter's life. Um, our daughter was, this is uh, child number three, and um, child number one and number two had gone to a unique high school here in Normal, Illinois, where we live. And um, that unique high school was a public high school, but it uh, required an application and only 150 kids were admitted into each class. And so the, the local public high schools were very large. They were graduating maybe, you know, 500 to 1,000 students in a, in a class. And this was a smaller, more personal school. And so our oldest daughter had, um, had applied and got right in. Um, two years later, her brother applied and got right in. Four years later, our daughter Erica applied and didn't get in. And that was absolutely devastating 
for her. She so badly wanted to just follow along in the footsteps of her brother and sister. I mean, honestly, she had never even considered going anywhere except you, High. I mean, that's what you did because that's all she saw ahead of her. And it just so happens that she got her, um, what do you call that, uh, rejection letter, <laughs> thanks but no thanks letter, uh, probably four weeks before Evan graduated from high school. Now, I want you to think about something. What happens in the last four weeks of high school, uh, with the exception of when COVID-19 is going on and you can't do all of the things at the end of high school, but this was a normal year. And that meant we were doing all kinds of things like senior night at the choir concert and award ceremonies and um, sports events. I mean, there was just all kinds of things going on. So we were at the high school multiple times a week and we usually support each other as a family. You know, we required that our kids would go and support their siblings. But every time we would go to something at U High, Erica would sit next to me and the tears would just flow down her face. Because the school that wanted her big brother and big sister didn't want her. That's what it felt like to her. And I'll tell you, up to that point, I had really been a buck-up mom. I would have used that situation um, to just simply tell her that she needed to pull up her bootstraps. She needed to buck up and move on. She needed to figure out what plan B was. But God was working inside of me to better understand the importance of compassion. I didn't fully understand it at that point, but I was beginning to understand it. And all of a sudden, I realized that I needed to handle this differently. I needed to be intentional about how I responded to her. Uh, Mark and I talked about um, how we needed to respond to her together. Now, Mark's much more compassionate than I am. When we do like the, um, oh, the, you know, different personality temperament tests, um, he's a feeler. I'm a thinker. Thinkers are logical. Thinkers are data-based. Thinkers don't have a whole lot of use for feelings, especially when they don't value them or they don't understand them. Or in my case, when you're kind of an avoider and you don't want to mess with feelings at all. And so I knew, though, I needed to handle this carefully. And so we talked about ways that we could be intentional about helping her. And we determined that for the month of May, which was that last month of high school for Evan, the first month after Erica got her rejection letter, that that would be a month of compassion. That we would, we would not try to fix it because there really wasn't any way we could fix it, but we would try to feel it with her. We would respond with empathy, with validation, um, lots of hugs, lots of encouragement. And eventually we even made a decision that for that month, um, she did not have to attend all of the events that Evan had his last year of high school, his last month of high school, because it was so incredibly painful for her. And that was the very first time that I lived out what it looked like for home to be a trauma unit. And when 
when that, what I began to realize is that as I embraced compassion, as I responded with compassion, as I responded with empathy, what it did is it actually increased connection with my daughter. That was a beautiful side effect. That was a beautiful result of what happened with my girl. And I began to realize the power and the impact of compassion and why I needed to maybe begin to leave buck up mindset behind as it related particularly to my children at that time. So that was the first part of my journey. But, you know, two, three years, I'm, I'm practicing home as a trauma unit. I'm uh, responding more quickly with feelings. Um, but then my marriage begins to go through a terrible, terrible crisis. And uh, it was a very, very dark season. I was writing No More Perfect Moms while my marriage went through that dark season. And so I began, though, kind of pouring more compassion even into my writing at that point in time. Um, part of our marriage crisis, and we'll share about this much more in a future episode when Mark, um, or I should say future episodes, when Mark joins with me and we process kind of what happened, dissect our crisis so that others can learn from it. Um, but Mark went through a full-on midlife crisis uh, affair included. And that was um, such a dark year. Um, he went back and forth between the other relationship multiple times. He would recommit to us. He would leave. He would recommit to us. He would leave. It was, it was so very, very difficult. And yet, it's hard to believe but that would be the next scenario that God would use to actually drive compassion to a far deeper level in my heart. You see, I knew that there was a lot going on inside of my husband. And I knew that the majority of it really wasn't about our marriage. Don't get me wrong. There was plenty of dysfunction in our marriage. And I needed to own what was my dysfunction. I needed to be so intentional about the way in which I responded to him because I recognized that his heart was very, very broken um, and his heart was hurting in a lot of ways. And much of it came from um, his growing up years, which um, had a lot of trauma in it. And it was during that season where I actually grew compassion for my husband in his lostness. Because I knew that that compassion um, was what was going to keep me connected to his pain. And it's also what gave me hope that if he could actually begin to heal from some of those broken places from many, many, many years ago in his life that he was still dragging around in his adult years, then there actually might be hope that our marriage could make it. Now, Eventually, it was spring of 2012 when Mark had his turnaround. He had what we call his own personal resurrection on 
Easter Sunday, and we began full on the healing process. He surrendered. I mean, he just threw up the white flag of surrender to God and said, God, I don't, I have made a mess of things. I don't even know how to clean this up, but whatever you ask me to do, I'll do. And we, as we began that healing process, um, we both began to look at what we had brought dysfunctionally into our marriage. And one of the things that I brought dysfunctionally into our marriage is I brought the propensity to avoid emotion. You see, I have this natural avoider in me and I don't like to, you know, I don't like to deal with emotional stuff because it just gets too messy. And, you know, I'm about facts and data and I don't want the messiness of emotional conflict. Um, At least that was the way I used to be. Um, We now refer ourselves, uh, refer to ourselves as Mark and Jill 2.0. That means that there's a 2.0 version of Jill and there's a 2.0 version of Mark and there's a 2.0 version of us together as a couple. And so when I say how I stopped being a buck up wife and a mom, what I'm referring to is Jill 1.0 was a buck up wife and mom. Jill 2.0 has stopped that and has learned to embrace compassion. It was interesting because it was also during um, our marriage crisis that I not only began to realize that my propensity to avoid emotion and therefore not be compassionate was contributing to the dysfunction of our marriage, but it was also during that very dark season that I was on the receiving side of compassion. So when Mark left, when he literally packed a suitcase and I found out that he had left and he had moved into, he was moving into an apartment, um, my heart was beyond broken. And my friend Becky showed up on my doorstep within two hours of him leaving. At that time, Becky was a um, uh I started to say stay-at-home mom, but her son was grown. Uh, she was still stay-at-home. Uh, I like to say that Becky is a woman committed to the, uh, to the ministry of availability. She truly is. And uh, her husband had encouraged her to pack a suitcase, show up on my doorstep, and stay as long as needed. And she stayed for three days. And... I found, I mean, you know, the first few days I didn't eat. I mean, had Becky not been there and pushed food in front of me and made me eat and drink, I was non-functional. My boys, I had two teenagers at the time and three adult children, and Becky made sure those boys had meals and was, you know, in and getting on the school bus and in and out of school um, because I was non-functional. At night, I'd wake up in the middle of the night in this empty bed and I would just cry and I remember one particular night when Becky just walked into the room she could hear me crying and she walked into the room and crawled in next to me in the bed and just held me and let me cry and I had never experienced being on that side of compassion to really have someone um, comfort you and feel with you 
but not try to fix you or not try to fix the situation because quite frankly, she couldn't. It was a very painful place, but what she could do is she could let me know I wasn't alone. And that was really powerful for me. And as Mark and I began to put the broken pieces back together in our marriage, I began to realize the importance of embracing emotion. Uh, one of the things we talk about in our No More Perfect Marriages book is we talk about something called the slow fades. And the slow fades are the places that our hearts get pulled apart one little quarter inch at a time. And one of the slow fades, this was my particular slow fade, one that was big for me, was the slow fade of avoiding emotion. And it, would, it pulled my heart away from Mark because I was, I was not willing to be vulnerable, emotionally vulnerable with him. And that was a place that I knew I had an opportunity to grow in. I'll never forget sitting in the counselor's office. This was our marriage counselor. And, you know, it, we did weekly marriage counseling for 18 months after Mark made his U-turn and recommitted to the family and had his surrender point to put the broken pieces back together. And we were in one of our counseling sessions and uh, the counselor really challenged me. He said, Jill, when did you, no, he said, Jill, you have said on several different occasions, feelings don't matter. Feelings don't matter. When did, when was that lie planted? And I was like, I don't think it's a lie. He said, it is a lie. I said, why is it a lie? It's a lie that I'm telling myself. He said, because God is a feeling God and you were created in his image. So you are also a feeling person. That kind of stopped me in my tracks. And I was like, all right, so I need, I need to embrace this somehow. I need to dig into that question. When did I begin to discard feelings. And God took me back to a couple of times in my childhood where crises happened and my heart wasn't necessarily tended to. So what did I do? I bucked up. And when that happens over several different occasions and no one is tending to your heart, you just buck up. You get strong. You learn that you, you just have to push through. And I learned to do that. And I thought that that was, I thought that was strength. And you know what? To some degree it is. I mean, there's value in being able to do that, but there's got to be a balance in it. And it was during that season of self-reflection that I realized that I needed to begin to embrace the feeling side of life. And that's how I began my journey to stop being a buck-up wife and a buck-up mom. Why did this matter in my marriage? Well, because my husband would communicate a concern and I would just minimize that concern because I would feel it was entirely too emotional. So I would minimize what he said, or I wouldn't hear his heart or hear his hurt. I wouldn't feel with him, but instead I would try to fix him. 
And I realized that I needed to change that. Eventually, God took me to Ephesians 4.32. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Be kind and compassionate. And when I was that buck-up mom or that buck-up wife, kindness wasn't always my response and nor was compassion. I remember uh, when my friend Tammy Maltby was sharing with me about compassion, and she said this to me. She said, Jill, compassion is a choice. We have to choose to see. We have to choose to reach out to the other person and weep when they weep, and we have to use our tears and pain to relate, to build a bridge into another person's reality. It's one of God's most powerful tools. Here's what I learned. Buck up spouses try to fix. Compassionate spouses try to feel. Buck up parents try to fix. Compassionate parents try to feel. Compassion feels. It builds bridges. And it creates a sense of safety and security in the relationships that mean the most to you. And so a lot of times I get questions. The more we talk about this in our marriage conferences, in our marriage coaching, when I teach, when I speak on parenting and on mothering, and I share this as part of my journey, the question that usually comes is, how do you even start? If you know that you have a buck up propensity, how do you even begin to start having compassion? So here are just a few ways that I found helpful for increasing compassion. The first step I took is I learned to focus on the feelings not on a solution. That was hard for me because I'm just a natural fix-it. In fact, on the Strengths Finder test, I'm a maximizer. I'm always looking how to fix things. So this was tough. But I learned to uh, pay attention to what the other person was feeling. Sometimes it was self-compassion. And I needed to focus on the feelings I was having. One of the ways that I did that is um, uh, several years ago, I ran across a list by my friends Mylan and Kay Yurkovich, the authors of How We Love, which was um, one of the first books that I ever uh, learned about what being an avoider was doing to my relationships and how it was hurting my marriage and my mothering. And so um, one of the things they created is a list called Soul Words. A soul words list. And I'll make sure and put a link in the show notes, both to that book as well as where you can access that soul words list. But I literally printed out multiple copies of that soul words list. It was on my refrigerator. It was in my bathroom. It was in my Bible. It was wherever I could see it so that I could try to connect with the feelings that I was experiencing or the feelings that others were experiencing. Uh, one of our kids really struggled identifying his feelings 
as well. And I actually made copies of that soul words list. And when he would be irritable or moody, um, I'd knock on his bedroom door and I'd say, hey, buddy, I know, I know something's weighing heavy on you. I don't know what it is, but here, I want you to circle which word or words best describes. And I remember one of the first times I did that, um, I, I told him, I said, just leave, leave it when you're done with it, leave it on my pillow in my bedroom. And I remember picking up the paper and he had circled the word overwhelmed. So he'd been moody and he'd been irritable. In fact, this was, if I remember right, it was his summer, the summer before he was heading off to college. And, um, and so I, you know, was able then to connect with what was going on in his heart. So without having compassion, without tuning into feelings, I'll tell you what the old, the Jill 1.0 would have done. The Jill 1.0 would have been like, hey buddy, you need to straighten up. I don't know what is going on inside of you, but you are being disrespectful and this is not okay. That would have been treating a symptom. But by, by understanding that he was overwhelmed, I was actually able to go to the root of that. And so I was able to pick a point where I could, you know, I knocked on his do door and said, hey, buddy, I, I got your, you know, I got your circled um, soul words and um, I totally get that you're feeling overwhelmed. Like there's a lot of change that's going to happen. Can we talk about what you're feeling most overwhelmed about? And then we were able to have a conversation about it. That's the beauty of focusing on feelings and not a solution. You know, it's, it's kind of the old adage that people don't care what you know until they know that you care. And so what we need to do is focus on the feelings so that people know that we care. So we sit with them. Um, we respond when they maybe they give us a little bit of an idea of what's going on, but we respond with tell me more or tell me more about that. And that invites them to keep talking and to keep processing through their feelings. So that would be the first step that I found helpful in moving from being a buck up wife and mom to being a more compassionate, connected wife and mom. The second way is to look at the situation from the other person's perspective. Walk in their shoes. That's what empathy does. It walks in their shoes. Um, and, and so it puts yourself in that place. Can you remember, maybe if you're dealing with, let's say, a teenager, and I mean, do you remember the strong emotions you felt? I mean, the hormones are going nuts, right? Or maybe in marriage, looking at a situation for, from your spouse's perspective. I remember the first time that somebody... Um, uh, reached out to me after they had read Home as a Trauma Unit, the, that chapter in my, my Hearts at Home book. And, and the woman said to me, I am so convicted. She said, my husband lost his job. And this was uh, way back in the recession. Um, and she said, my husband lost his job. And every day I have said to him, all right, how many... How many resumes did you send out? How many applications did you fill out today? I mean, that's all I have said to him. I have never 
once tried to view it from his perspective, like what that felt like to be let go, what that felt like to, um, as the company downsized, to be determined that you were disposable. She said, home has not been a trauma unit for my husband. And I need to make it that. And she went home that night. Um, oh, I remember. It wasn't when she had read a book. She had actually heard me speak on the subject. And she went home and apologized to him and followed up um, with me in an email um, that she was determined that going forward, she was going to be far more sensitive to what, what he must be feeling emotionally as he lost his job. So look at the situation from the other person's perspective. Put yourself in their shoes. You might even validate where they are emotionally. And that's a place that I've also grown is um, validating is saying it makes sense that you would feel that way. So for instance, validating Austin that day in um, as he was getting ready to go to college and he was feeling overwhelmed. Hey, it makes sense that you would feel overwhelmed. There's a lot of change ahead of you. There's a lot of unknown. Um, you know, it makes sense that you would feel overwhelmed. So sitting with them in that. Eventually, we did begin to talk about how he could um, move from overwhelmed to feeling accomplished and how he could... Um, you know, tackle what was in front of him. So eventually we moved into a place of talking about fixing, but we didn't do that until we felt like we had had compassion. Home was the trauma unit and we were feeling right along with him. For our daughter, Erica, when she didn't get into that uh, high school that she wanted to, I mean, we determined that we were going to feel with her for about a month. It wasn't until June that we began to say, all right, so what are the other options? Uh, how are you going to uh, reframe this in your mind? How are you going to move forward from this, play, this place? Um, for I think for uh, Austin during that summer, it was, hey, you know what? Um, I think, you know, maybe we were compassionate for a few days with him. And then we began to talk about how you doing with the overwhelm. You want to talk about some ways that maybe you can move out of that. And we began to move into that fix-it place, but it wasn't until we spent time feeling. It's a beautiful gift that we can give to our spouse and to our kids. And then um, the last way to increase compassion is to respond with empathetic statements. So what would those statements be? Things like, I bet that was so disappointing, or... I'm sure that hurt your heart deeply. Or maybe even that breaks my heart. I'm sure it breaks your heart as well. Or I am so sorry. I'm sure that was painful for you to experience. So three ways to increase compassion. Focus on the feelings, not a solution. Look at the situation from the other person's perspective. Put yourself in their shoes be empathetic and validating, and then finally respond with empathetic statements that lets them know that they are not alone. So more recently, this happened probably about three years ago. My granddaughter, who is now 10, but at that time uh, was, let's see, it would be probably she was eight, um, maybe seven and a half, eight. And she and her family, she had just learned that her family was going to be moving. 
her dad had gotten a new job and they were going to be moving. And I knew that the conversation was going to happen in their home that night. And they anticipated it would particularly be difficult for her. You know, because at that point in time, she was a third grader and she, you know, had her friends and friends in the neighborhood. And, you know, they were they were only going to be moving an hour away, but obviously it would be new school. It would be new church. It would be new neighborhood. It would be all of that. And uh, I communicate with my they're set up on um, Facebook Messenger. They don't have a Facebook page, but they're set up on Messenger and they're able to communicate with me through messenger. They have a very limited number of people they can communicate. But I got a message from her that that day and she was heartbroken. Nana, I just found out we're moving. And I just found out that we're going to have to leave our church and we're going to have to leave our neighborhood. I'm going to have to move my school and it's awful. And I'll tell you what, Nana 1.0 would have said, oh, but honey, there is, there's new friends to be had, and there's a new school and a new church, and just think of all that's ahead of you. But that wasn't what she needed right then. She needed me to feel with her. She didn't need me to offer her platitudes to try to pull her out of the feelings. She needed me to feel with her. And I remember that night. In fact, I can go back in my messenger and I can still see it. And I remember a sense of, I don't know, a sense of growth and and gratefulness for the growth. Because I, I responded to her with very empathetic statements. Oh, honey, I'm sure that that was very hard for you to hear tonight. I'm sure that there's a lot of fear that's going on. Is that right? And she would say, yes, there, there's, I'm afraid of a lot of things. Yeah, what are some of the things you're afraid of? And we talked through those. And I just continued to encourage her to let me know all the pieces that she was feeling. And that's what needed to happen that night. And that was a sense of accomplishment for me and my growth, knowing, you know what? This was not a moment that needed a fix it, Nana. This was a moment that needed a feel it, Nana. And part of the reason I believe that she jumped on Messenger, and I was one of the first ones that she communicated with, is because I'd been working on that. And that's really what we want. We want to be safe for our family members. We want to be safe for our friends, that they don't feel like when we tell them our problems, um, or when they tell us their problems, that we're going to try to just fix it, that we're going to listen, and we're going to listen to understand, not listen to fix, listen to disagree, listen to tell you what to do. It's honestly been a life-changing journey for me to learn how to listen with compassion. Now, eventually, my granddaughter and I began to talk about what was ahead of her, and what the possibilities were. But we didn't do that until we had several feeling conversations, until she was able to shed the tears and talk through the fears and sort through the emotions that she was experiencing. 
I don't know about you. I don't know where you are on the buck up scale. But I just want to encourage you to continue to grow in compassion. I want to encourage you um, to, to pay attention to those opportunities where you have maybe a why in the road and you could go the old way and try to fix it or you can go the new way and try to feel it with your spouse, with your child, with a friend and just see the difference it begins to make in your connection with that person. Because I think we can all benefit from increasing our compassion. I hope you'll join me for my next episode. Well, we're actually going to continue this conversation, but from a completely different perspective. Uh, I'm going to be talking with author Sherry Gregory. She's written a book called Sensitive and Strong. And we're going to be looking at a different perspective of compassion as we talk about something called HSPs. What is an HSP? Well, you'll need to tune in to the next episode to learn more about that. But what I can tell you is that you probably are either an HSP or you live with an HSP. Maybe more than one. I found out I was living with several HSPs uh, when you take my children into consideration and now even my grandchildren. So in the meantime, flex your compassion muscle this week. I promise you it's the next right step to deepen the relationships that mean the most to you. Thanks for joining me today on the No More Perfect podcast. If you haven't already, make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future conversations. You can find the show notes and links to anything we talked about over at jillsavage.org slash podcast. See you next week for another not perfect, but very important conversation about the real stuff of life.